You're listening to Straight from the Pulpit. Here you will find sermons taken directly from the pulpit of Shenandoah Baptist Church in Verona, Virginia. We preach Christ, study the Word of God, and help the Christian grow spiritually by applying God's Word to their lives. For more information or to read the pastor's blog, go to sbcverona.com. That is sbcverona.com. We are, as I mentioned here, we are going through a study on church history. Uh, and again, when I'm talking about church history, I'm not talking about the Shenandoah Baptist Church history. Uh, for There's a brief video about Shenandoah Baptist Church history on our website. Uh, but beyond that, uh, this is about the history of the church since the apostles' time. I will often refer to it as the apostolic time. Not that I'm referring to apostolic churches uh, of modern-day apostolic churches, because that's ridiculousness. Uh, I'm talking about, you know, the apostles, when they went out and started churches, like the Apostle Paul and John and Peter and Philip and all those others, went out and started churches, and they traveled all around the known world at the time. A lot of these churches and groups that we've been talking about trace their roots back to those apostles. And so we began uh, at the very beginning with Jesus Christ, which was where the church began. I don't believe the church began in Acts 2. I believe it began with Jesus Christ and his disciples, because that was when the first outpouring of the Holy Spirit came upon his disciples uh, was during Jesus' lifetime, you know, here on this earth, not during Acts 2, while that was, you know, a big outflowing of the Holy Spirit as well. It wasn't the first, but the church started with Jesus Christ, and so we started there and have been slowly making our way through various groups. We looked at groups like the Novations and the Donatists and the uh, there's another one I can think of right now, but we looked at these uh, groups that were in the region. There was the Novationists right there uh, in um, Italy itself within Rome, and they eventually got chased out. There was a group over in Turkey. There was a group down in North Africa, and they said, we don't like what the um, main body of the church is doing, the, basically the state church, the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, when Constantine came in, the 300 years of attacking the, the Christians ended, the persecuting the Christians ended. Remember, there was 10 emperors um, ending with Diocletian who uh, attacked the Christian church, trying to destroy them. Satan decided, I can't destroy them, so instead I'm going to, um, I'm going to pervert them. And I'm going to change the church and make it so that it's not, good, not worth anything. And then enters Constantine, which some would hail as a savior to the church, but it actually ended up being a bane to the church. Uh, because once the church, once Christianity was made popular, then everybody started doing it. And then, of course, it got corrupted. It was also during that time that a hierarchy was formed within the church, within the state church. And so now you didn't just have a bishop or a pastor and his congregation. Above him, you had other bishops and archbishops leading all the way up to the pope. Constantine had sole control over that at the very beginning. As time goes by, of course, Rome loses its um, political power, but the church remains so the Roman Empire, actually, its glory ends up turning into the Roman Catholic Church and the Holy Roman Empire. And so the glory of Rome continues through the Holy Roman Empire, even after Rome itself falls. And the Roman Catholic Church grows in, in, in size and in power uh, and in influence. And it becomes a huge problem to those uh, churches outside of it that said, we don't like what you're doing. This is corrupt. 
you're changing the words of God. You're adding to it. You're ignoring some of it. Now, this isn't right. We just want to stay over here with our church and worship biblically and do it the way the Bible says. They didn't call themselves Baptists. It'll be a little while before they would do that. But there were um, uh, dissidents. You know, they would be referred to as dissidents. We are against what you're doing. And of course, the, those in power over here said, no, you can't question our authority. You can't question our power on religion. And that's what a hierarchy in religion does. It's naturally going to do that every time. It's going to say, you can't question what we have to say. We have to stop you. And it turns into authoritarianism. It turns into tyranny. And so we've talked about these groups um, from, you know, 300 A.D. up through 1200 A.D. Uh, so far that have just seen tens and hundreds of thousands of people killed. These are Christians who have been killed by the Roman Catholic Church, hunted down and killed because they disagreed. And it was the popes who were making these decrees. We are uh, in the midst of talking about, um, let's see, we, we talked about the Albigenses already, and now we are talking about the Waldenses a group of people. And this is, well, the Waldenses is a, in a sense, it's a broad term. Uh, a lot of people think that the Waldenses name comes from Peter Waldo because he was a prominent leader, but it existed before him. Um, it was not uh, founded and started by him. In fact, many historians say you can't find a beginning to the Waldenses heritage. Where does it begin? Who does it begin with? Because it doesn't have a beginning in a sense. Uh, it does, but not what you may think. Uh, it doesn't have a beginning in that one man founded it like Lutheran, you know, ism or Calvinism, where you, it, it sources itself back to one man. Um, it's not that way with, you know, the Waldenses. Why? Well, because these are what was left over of the Novationists and the Donatists, and these were what were left over of churches, you know, true biblical churches who were persecuted. Uh, they were pushed out of Rome up into the valley, the Vald. Uh, which is probably where they get their name from because they were pushed up into the Piedmont, into this valley area where they dwelt and they propagated and they spread the gospel and they grew very much so up in that area. Well, that period lasts well over a thousand years. And we talked last week about persecution, uh, even from monarchs uh, upon them. Brings me up to 1486 Pope Innocent VIII orders their extermination. We talked about this last week. He raised an army of 18,000 men, uh, and they go up into the Valley of Lois and <clears throat> to a cave where many of these Waldenses had taken refuge, and they just lit you know, large fires at the mouths of the caves, which, of course, sucks all the oxygen out and kills all of them. 400 of the people inside those caves were children. Uh, that they killed because of their belief. In 1561, they are labeled as heretics. And we're going to come to this point several times. The main thing that the church attacked them on and labeled them as heretics was because of their rebaptizing. Um, but were they actually rebaptized? And we talked about this last week. You can't rebaptize somebody that wasn't actually baptized in the first place, right? right. So if you sprinkled a baby and call it baptism, when they become an adult and they get saved and want to be baptized, immersed underneath water, are they being rebaptized? No. They're actually being baptized for the first time in their life. Uh, well, the state church says, no, you're, you're telling us we're wrong. You're invalidating us. We can't, we can't take that kind of dissidence to our authority. And so they had the power. They had the, the reach into the you know, throne rooms of many nations. And so they could twist the king's 
and the princes and say, we need you to go and get rid of these people because they're dissidents. And so many times they did. Well, right now the Waldenses are living up in that Piedmont region, which is just above Rome in this valley area. What we would refer to as Savoy in the 15s and 1600s. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But um, they were living outside their traditional homeland. Um, some of them were. They had traveled outside of that valley area. And so the... Um, the nation of Savoy right there in northern Italy said, okay, everybody, all of the Waldenses have to live in this valley area. So you have, to, you have to come here and you have to move back and you have a ridiculously short amount of time to do so. Anybody found outside this valley area who disagrees with the church is going to be killed. But they didn't give them enough time. Uh, and many, many, many of them were killed. Thousands died that day. And it was referred to, it's remembered as the Bloody Easter. Uh, because so many were killed before they were actually able to return back to their homeland. Now, that news traveled all the way up to England, and here's a name that you'll probably recognize, Oliver Cromwell, uh, the Lord Protector of England. He heard about the Catholics trying to eradicate uh, the, the genocide, basically, upon the Waldenses, and he announced a National Day of Prayer and Fasting on May 30th, 1655. He wrote to uh, a Swiss religious group, and he says this to them. Next to the help of God, it seems to devolve on you to provide that the most ancient stock of pure religion may not be destroyed in this remnant of its ancient faithful professors. Notice how he refers to the Waldenses. He refers to them as the most ancient stock of pure religion. Talking about their lineage. You know, that they're not some new come-along faction or religion or denomination, that they're the most ancient. They have their roots the farthest back. He also refers to them as the, its ancient faithful professors, whose safety, reduced as it is now to the extremity of hazard, if you neglect, beware that the next lot do not speedily fall upon yourselves. You know, if you don't help these guys who are being attacked, you may not necessarily agree with them and everything, but if you don't help the Waldenses, you're next. You know, they're going to start coming after you too. He was so intent on rescuing them, he started to raise funds. And he raised in what would uh, today's money be about $5 million uh, to help the Waldenses. You know, this is not some obscure history. You know, we're talking about, uh, the, in a sense, the, the prime minister of, in a sense, of England at that time. John Milton, you probably have heard of Milton's, you know, poetry. Um, he was uh, the foreign secretary in England at the time, and in his way, he wrote about it. Avenge, O Lord, thy slaughtered saints, whose bones lie scattered on the Alpine mountains cold. Remember, we talked about that. They uh, fled up into the Alpine mountains on the snow, and most of them froze to death, uh, trying to flee away from the armies who were chasing them down. We're talking about Christians, you know, just ordinary civilians, like what you see, you know, going on in Israel today. He says, forget not, in thy book record their groans who were thy sheep and in their ancient fold slain by the bloody Piedmontese that rolled mother and infant down the rocks. Their moans, their, their moans, the veils redoubled to the hills and they to the heaven. Their martyred blood and ashes so o'er the Italian fields where still doth sway the tripled tyrant that from these may grow a hundredfold who have, having learned thy way early may fly the Babylonian woe. At this point, the English fleet of ships was dispatched to the Mediterranean uh, to cut off all trade to Savoy. Again, this is northern Italy. 
Uh, if you're going to, with your armies, attack these Christian people, you know, we're going to blockade you and prevent you from being able to receive any trade. We're going to hurt your pocketbook uh, to show you how serious you are. You know, rather than marking, marching soldiers into Savoy and declaring war, we're just going to cut off trade. Um, the Duke of Savoy ended up entering into an agreement with England to stop this massacre, uh, but it didn't actually end it. Uh, but it did allow their existence to continue. And even today, there's, you know, groups of Waldensies. Now, today, they're not the same uh, as what they were then. They, they have apostatized in many ways, you know, today um, than what they would have been back then. But the final blow to the Waldensies came from the Duke of Savoy, uh, Victor Amadeus II, in January of 1686. He wrote an edict that forbade the exercise of the Protestant religion by all his subjects upon pain of death. Pause. Um, were the Waldenses of the Protestant faith or denomination? No, they were not. That's the whole point of why we're going back and talking about these groups of people going all the way back to the apostles. You know, the, they existed prior to the Protestant Reformation. You know, we've been going back long before that. And we'll read some historians' uh, recounts of that about how they cannot be traced back to the Protestant Reformation, but long before that. So it wasn't the Protestant Reformation that finally created or, or drew truth once more out of the Roman Catholic Church. That is to say that we all came from that abomination, but we didn't. There were always true Bible, biblical churches, you know, throughout all ages back to the apostles. So we continue on. But anyways, um, the reason I said that was, you know, uh, after the Protestant Reformation, they got lumped in with them because they were protesting the Roman Catholic Church, but they had always been doing so. Uh, they didn't come out of it recently. They had always been separated from the Roman Catholic Church, but they got lumped in with the Protestants here in many cases. And still even today, many Baptists you know, consider themselves to be Protestants um, blindly in many cases because they haven't been informed or told otherwise. But we go on. The final blow that came to the Waldenses, the armies of France and Savoy, having inhumanly butchered a multitude of the Waldenses, committed more than 12,000 of them to prison and dispersed 2,000 of their children among the Catholics, concluding that their work was accomplished, and then they caused all their property be, to be confiscated. Um, of course, can you imagine as the news travels throughout the world that 12,000 in prison, many killed, and then 2,000 of their children taken from their homes and, and spread out among Catholic homes so they could be trained right, you know, uh, that would cause an uproar, and so it did. Uh, the Swiss uh, expressed their outrage in September of that year, and the Duke of Savoy ordered them to be released alive. And so now they are released from prisons to go back to their homes. In December, though, no one was allowed to house them, no one was allowed to feed them, no one was allowed to take care of them. And so as they start to try to make their way back home across the snow and the ice, most of them died. Very, very few of them actually made it back home. Those who survived to get to Geneva, uh, Switzerland, um, in the middle of December also died once they got, there are several that died once they got to the gates of Geneva and died there in the gates after traveling in the midst of the cold of December. We think about all of this persecution going on within, quote-unquote, Christianity. And how could one Christian do that sort of thing to another Christian? 
It doesn't make sense. We, we look at the news today and we think, how could a human being, you know, go into somebody else's home and, and drag families out and, and do the horrible things that they're doing to families? How can they, you know, take children and, and you know, murder these children in cold blood? And, you know, can't they, can they not see their own children? You know, can they not imagine what if somebody were doing this to my family? Can they not see the humanity? No, uh, they're blinded by hatred. Uh, of those people because they've been raised in that hatred. They've been taught that and it's been ingrained in them their entire lives so that they can see nothing else. The same thing happened with uh, many of the folks in Nazi Germany. And you have these fishermen and textile workers and you know everyday run-of-the-mill guys uh, who got recruited into the police force and they went in after the armies went into you know Poland and went into Russia and other areas, Ukraine. Uh, the armies rolled through and uh, the, the citizens were so thrilled that the Nazi armies had come through because they were so nice. But then came the police and these police battalions came in and they rounded up Jews. They rounded up um, different races that they didn't like uh, and killed them by the tens of thousands. Just shot them in the head in the side ditches and buried them, you know, bulldozed them over. And it was, it was just normal guys. They were fishing one day, the next day they joined this police battalion having no clue what they were going to be doing. And uh, how did they induce these normal average guys who were not murderers before and who after the war didn't go on to be, still be murderers, how did they induce them to kill thousands and thousands of people? You know, that's a, that's a hard question to answer. And really, it, it comes when we take the responsibility off of ourselves and we place that responsibility on somebody else and we say... Um, well, I'm only doing it because I was told to do it. I'm only doing it because it was the order that was given. It was right at the time I was supposed to do it. Now you're saying it's wrong, but when I was doing it, it was right. Uh, and so I was just following the orders, and so they remove responsibility from themselves and still do not feel many didn't, you know, even during the Nuremberg trials, still did not feel the responsibilities uh, for the actions that they had taken in pulling those triggers uh, and killing those people because it was right at the time that they were doing it. Um, so how do these churches, Christians, so, so to speak, attack them? D.B. Ray writes this about the depravity of man. He says, the first step towards persecution among professed Christians was the gradual introduction of a change from the simple brotherly compact of religious equality established by Jesus Christ. That's the autonomous, local, independent Baptist church. We have a pastor, but he's not the dictator. He's the servant. He's the, the head servant, in a sense. Um, and it is run by, you know, Jesus Christ being the head of the church, the word of God being its sole source of doctrine. Uh, and that's it. When you move from that simple brotherly compact of religious equality established by Jesus Christ for the hierarchy of the third century, this is post-Constantine, as long as the principles of religious equality are observed, there can be no persecution. Any religious system which gives one person ecclesiastical authority over another contains the seeds of persecution. And so they were attacked and many were destroyed. On a side note here, I had mentioned previously that the Waldenses are credited for actually having been involved in the preservation of the Bible. Uh, you know, who continued to preserve the scriptures? Well, the Waldenses were, were, are credited for part of that preservation. Their preservation of God's word was so revered that even Martin Luther and John Calvin, when they wanted to translate the Bible into the common vernacular uh, so that the commoner, you know, the farmer could you know, sit down and read the Bible, 
um, where did they go to? Well, they couldn't go to the, the Latin Vulgate of the Roman Catholic Church. It had been changed. It was an Alexandrian text. Uh, they actually went and sought out the Waldensi scriptures uh, to find out what they had to say uh, because theirs was a Byzantine text, what we refer to as the Textus Receptus, which basically just means the received text. It is what the church, the true biblical church, received and used. And so if you follow those manuscripts back throughout uh, the history of the church, you see that it was not the Roman Catholic Church that used the Byzantine text. They used the Alexandrian text. They sourced their, you know, their Greek and their Hebrew and their Aramaic from different sources than the Byzantine text. The Byzantine text, which is what the King James Bible comes from, had been used all along uh, by Bible-believing churches. And so when they wanted an unadulterated text, they went to the Waldenses because they had been very careful in keeping it. But this caused problems. You're undermining the main organism, the Roman Catholic Church's authority over the Word of God by putting the Word of God into people's hands, and not just any Word of God, one that is different from theirs, that includes verses that theirs does not include, that makes changes, or, or well, doesn't make changes, theirs made changes, but has differences, I guess I should say, uh, that the Latin Vulgate did not have. In fact, they had gotten so far, the Roman Catholics had gotten so far ignorant of the Word of God that there's, a, there's accounts where priests and monks were actually surprised and horrified that somebody told them that there was a New Testament. Can you imagine dedicating yourself to the study of the Word of God, to the preaching of the gospel, uh, to religious practices, I guess I could say, and you're so ignorant of the Bible itself, you don't even know there's an Old Testament and a New Testament. You know that little about it. In fact, you probably can't even read it because you don't speak the language. You don't read the language that they kept it in. Very few could actually do that. So it was up to the Waldensian people. And we can owe them the credit and honor for the human preservation of the pure text of scriptures for generations to follow and that which you hold in your lap today. They fled, continued to flee persecution, and they had to travel north. They moved up into Europe, France, Germany, the Balkans, Poland's. Uh, unfortunately, though, as time went by, they succumbed to pressure from the Protestants around them. And now... Um, in the 18th century, I should say, in the 1700s, they adopted doctrines like uh, Calvinism, you know, the French Huguenots, uh, Arminianism, um, even, uh, you know, pedo-baptism, pa in other words, uh, infant baptism, which was what separated them by name in the first place. The, the church, I mean, the, the Roman Catholic Church focused in on that one thing, you're rebaptizing. You're rebaptizing. That means you're annulling what we said was here. You're saying that it's useless, it's void, we can't put up with that. That's what grouped all these people together in the minds of the Roman Catholic Church, that they are Anabaptists, rebaptizers. Even though the Anabaptist movement hadn't really uh, come into fruition quite yet, which is our next group we're going to talk about. But that was what made them who they were, and eventually they succumbed to the pressure to infant baptism. And you see that even in many Protestant churches today, this idea of baptizing children as they are infants. And I don't just mean young children, five, six, seven years old. I mean, if a child is old enough to understand the gospel and get saved, uh, then they're old enough to get baptized. Um, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about baptizing a baby 
uh, for the purposes of removing their original sin, you know, their sin nature that they were born with. Today, we can't consider modern Waldensian churches as a New Testament church. Which leads us on to the Anabaptist movement. We've talked about the name Anabaptism, meaning rebaptizing. And I want to point something out here as we get into names. Most of the names I'm going to mention here now are not names that these groups took on themselves. These are names that their enemies gave them uh, to make fun of them. Well, like Christian, for example. Uh, the term Christian was first used as a derogatory term to make fun of those who were Bible-believing Christians. Well, we refer to them now as Christians, uh, but it was just like, oh, you're just a bunch of little Christs. You know, you're just a bunch of little Jesuses walking around, you Christians. And it was used as a derogatory term, which we adopted and said, okay, actually, yeah, that sounds good. We want to be little Christs. That's perfect, actually. Uh, we're going to adopt that name. Well, the term Anabaptist is one of these names where it was used as a term of derision, but that wasn't the only one. There were numerous groups throughout the Middle Ages, throughout uh, the Dark Ages even, um, who had practiced Anabaptism, rebaptizing, re uh, such as the Waldenses, the Arnoldists, the Poor of Lions, the Petributions, Henricians, Hussites, the Lollards. Now, again, with all these names, we're not going to agree with all of these people on all of their doctrine. And I've said that many times, just let you know, if you hear, oh yeah, well the Waldenses also believed this. <gasps> I thought they were the you know, true Bible church. Hey, Within that movement, you're going to have a whole lot of people, and I'll do a lot because they were autonomous, you know, just like we're supposed to be. Independent Baptist churches, and they, some of them had some strange things, you know, that they went off on. But the point is, they said that that monstrous organism that is the Roman Catholic Church is wrong. It's corrupt, and we need to stay and remain separate from that. During the Dark Ages, they were forced to hide themselves uh, because they were trying to be destroyed. However, in 1520, this is when um, you know, the 95 Theses are nailed to uh, that door uh, by Martin Luther. The Reformation occurs. They finally got something like freedom for the first time. And they begin to spread and spring up in many other countries. And there's many groups like the Bogomils, which means beloved of God, the Paterines, which means the suffering ones, the Picards, which mean the holy ones. Uh, we've talked about the Cathari, the pure ones. Uh, the separatists, um, which is an interesting term, the separatists, it's a religious societies that they lived during uh, the late 1600s and they rejected the authority of the Church of England. This is the Anglican Church. They said the Anglican Church wants to be the state church. They claim to have sole authority over everything that is taught. We are saying, no, you don't have sole authority. We want to exist outside of that. Um, that would be the separatists. They're usually, they usually consisted of uh, Brownist, Congregationalist, and Baptist churches. Uh, they were all considered separatists. Then there's the, uh, I have to say this in German, Rottengeister. Uh, they're, they're the agitators. The Winklers, that's the corner preachers. The Stoblers, uh, that's the staff bearers. And the Humiliati, the humble, the Sabbats, the wooden shoed. Uh, and these are all names that they didn't give themselves. Like, oh, we're the Sabbats, you know, we're the wooden shoe uh, church. Why would you name yourself that? Well, they weren't. Uh, these were names that were given to them by their enemies. And then there's the Inzibatatis, the Sabbath men, and the Sacramentarians, the grace through faith ones. These were terms of contempt. We're going to see in a little bit, well, next week that is, we'll see that the, this, this general movement of Anabaptists, which all of these people I just mentioned would have been under that, that umbrella of Anabaptism, they chose their own name. They didn't want to be referred to Anabaptists anymore. You know what name 
most of them chose Baptist. We're not rebaptizers. We're baptizers. That is not the only thing that defines who we are, but that is the, was the main thing that separated us or separated them from the Roman Catholic Church of that time and from many of even the Protestant churches of that time. It was this idea of baptism and not infant baptism, uh, not baptismal regeneration that, you know, baptism washes away our sins and, and aids in our salvation. You know, that wasn't taught in the Bible, and they separated on those things. People who aligned themselves with these societies, they, hum, they numbered in the hundreds of thousands at the time of the Reformation, before the Reformation even began. There was hundreds of thousands of people who dissented, who disagreed with the Roman Catholic Church, and they had their own independent churches. The one term that expressed their doctrinal distinction from the state church was that ancient term, Anabaptist. No leader existed that started the Anabaptist movement. If you search it in history, you cannot find a single leader that began the movement that can bear the name of the movement. There is not one because it existed. It was a continuation of the ancient faith going all the way back to the time of the apostles. They drew the name Anabaptist by their enemies. Just like many of the other names that were given to them, they drew those names by their enemies as well. They simply appear to be a continuation of the ancient faith that is bubbling up to the surface. And so no matter how hard the organisms of you know, the Roman Catholic Church or many of the great Protestant, and I say great, I just mean great in size, you know, Protestant churches, uh, no matter how hard they may try to, to stop you know, the Baptist churches, to stop the, the true believing Bible churches, it's still going to just keep bubbling up to the surface. Remember, Satan tried to persecute the church out of existence. When he realized that was not going to work, he then tried to apostatize them out of existence. But despite his best efforts, we're just going to keep bubbling back up to the surface. So we'll continue talking about the Anabaptists um, next week. After the Anabaptists, looking forward uh, to talking about some of the Protestant Reformation. You know, we don't, we don't claim that we came from the, that we're a product of the Protestant Reformation, but there are things that happened during the Protestant Reformation that are worthy of note. Uh, to talk about some of these big names, what they disagreed with, how they went about disagreeing, what it ended up costing them, you know, dying uh, as a result of their disagreement with the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, and so we'll talk about uh, some of those things as we get past the Anabaptists. Um, so looking forward to that. We've gone from Jesus through the persecutions, through um, the main groups of people who dissented the early Roman Catholic Church and then the Middle Ages, those Dark Ages, that time period uh, where there was no Word of God and then the Dark Ages is going to end with um, the printing press, Gutenberg's printing press. When the Bible, which by, remember, the whole reason he invented the printing press was not for the newspapers. Uh, it wasn't so that, you know, atheistic books could be written. It wasn't so that um, evolutionist books could be written. He invented the printing press for the sole reason of printing Bibles so that the common people could read it, so that there could be a copy in every home. Uh, that's why he invented the printing press. And that ended the Dark Ages because it was spiritually dark without the Word of God. 
And now when the word of God begins to disseminate freely, well, for a time, um, the dark ages end. You have been listening to Straight from the Pulpit podcast from the pulpit of Shenandoah Baptist Church in Verona, Virginia. Be sure to follow this podcast and share this sermon with a friend. And if you're listening on Spotify, please leave us a five-star review. See you next time.